Hey friends, welcome back to the Journal Feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We make keeping up with the literature easy. It's like having the latest research spoon-fed to you through your earbuds. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we've covered this week. The first three articles were from the new Advanced Life Care Support Guidelines. We have lots of them. We have them for adults and we have them for kids. After that, we had the top articles for 2020 and finish off with dropping the T off of the heart pathway. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the jovial Clay Smith. Now, the first article, actually the first three articles, which I've compressed all into one, were from the 2020 American Heart Association Guidelines for Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation and Emergency Cardiovascular Care out of the Journal of Circulation. So three days worth of summarizing things from these guidelines. Everything that you need to know. The last major update to the American Heart Association guidelines were in 2015, but since then more research has come out so they're able to improve. Of course, we're still nowhere near definite on still so many points in these guidelines, but they actually did a good job of pointing out where knowledge gaps exist. So hopefully they'll be able to prompt people to do research in these areas, since just 12% of the evidence that we do comes from at least, I mean, even one RCT. So here's the plan. We're going to cover the main points emphasized from the guideline update for adults and then for pediatrics for both basic and advanced life support, and then quickly summarize them all. So now let's start with adults. When a lay person recognizes a cardiac arrest, they should promptly and nearly simultaneously activate emergency services as well as starting CPR. The focus is still on calling for help, but at almost the same time compressions should be started. Cricoid pressure is not specifically recommended to help with opening the airway. Nothing new about the compressions. You want high quality compressions as normal, which are very important. You need 2 inch depth at 100 to 120 pushes per minute. The AHA now says that a bag mass ventilation or an advanced airway, be it supraglottic or endotracheal, is acceptable. They suggest against the use of POCUS for prognostication during CPR though. Along with high-quality CPR is the need for early defibrillation, which isn't new, but it's critical to survival, especially if the risk is due to VFib or pulses VTAC. Dual sequential defibrillation was mentioned in the new guidelines, but given a weak 2B recommendation that there may be benefit. Giving epinephrine is emphasized in these guidelines, particularly it should be given early in patients with non-shockable rhythms, and if the rhythm is shockable, then after the initial defibrillation. Try to give epi IV if possible, but IO is always there in a pinch. A new tune for the AHA was actually the recognition of the kind of cookie-cutter nature of ACLS. When in real life, I mean, no two arrests are the same, so you want a little bit more specialized management. They went on to focus on perimortem C-sections, which you may want to reach a decision on within five minutes into the arrest. Another special population is opioid overdose, which has to be on the radar, especially in altered patients with respiratory depression. Naloxone should of course be given. If it's a full arrest though, then CPR should be done as normal. Also appreciated in these guidelines is a big focus on post-arrest care, which is a vital part of the chain of survival. Oxygen should be kept in the Goldilocks zone between 92 and 98%, and tidal CO2 between 35 and 45, and maintain a map over 65. A 12-lead ECG should be done as soon as possible, a CT head if needed, and treat seizures and then monitor for further activity using EEGs. If the patient does not recover post-ROSC, then targeted temperature management is indicated and you're going to go for between 32 and 36 degrees Celsius. 
The threshold for actually doing this is quite low. The AHA advises targeted temperature management in all patients who do not follow commands after ROSC. Furthermore, here is a direct quote about care after warming. Accurate neurological prognostication in brain-injured cardiac arrest survivals is critically important to ensure that patients with significant potential for recovery are not destined for certain poor outcomes due to care withdrawal, end quote. So full multimodal prognostication should be done within 72 hours after rewarming. The last point is going to be expectation setting, both for the patients and for their caregivers. Most patients will not recover fully, and very few will recover quickly. They need to know what to expect and have a survivorship plan in place for surveillance and rehabilitation. Now, that's it for the adult side of things. Let's take a look at the pediatric guidelines. Again, here they're really reaffirming the importance of high-quality CPR in all its components. That is an adequate rate and depth. That's 1.5 inches or 4 centimeters without interruptions if possible and allow for full chest recoil and avoid excessive ventilation. On the note of ventilation, though, the recommended breaths per minute has been doubled from a previously at 10 to 12 and now at 20 to 30 breaths per minute in infants and children receiving CPR. More on ventilation, this is also a big change in the new recommendation, is a cuffed endotracheal tube to decrease the need for tube changes. The formula to calculate the size of tube you'll want is the age divided by 4 plus 3.5. Recommendations for bag mask ventilation have also changed. Cricoid pressure is no longer recommended as it's not shown to reduce any regurgitation. That doesn't make bag mask valve any less important though, because for out-of-hospital arrests, the resuscitation outcomes are actually the same between if there was a bag mask valve ventilation used or an advanced airway was placed. The adult recommendations for early epinephrine are mirrored in the pediatric population. Early is better, especially with non-shockable rhythms. Same goes for post-ROSC care, the same thing, the same points are going to be emphasized. The guidelines state that for children who do not regain consciousness after ROSC, care includes targeted temperature management and continuous EEG monitoring. These children might need at least as much rehab as adults do. Another emphasized point is that children aren't safe from the opioid epidemic, so don't rule it off your DDX. They can be exposed accidentally or intentionally, so keep naloxone close at hand. And the last point on pediatrics, here's another direct quote, is that fluid resuscitation in sepsis is based on patient response and requires frequent reassessment. Balanced crystalloids, unbalanced crystalloid, and colloid fluids are all acceptable for sepsis resuscitation. Epinephrine or norepinephrine infusions are used for fluid refractory septic shock. End quote. They mention all of these three types of fluids. Balanced fluids are probably better than normal saline, and to definitely no hypotonic fluids for children anymore. Okay, that's it. That's a lot of information all at once. So now let's compress it down even further and regurgitate a quick summary of the points. For adults, CPR is important. High quality is emphasized. Then double sequential defibrillation is allowed, but evidence is still needed. Early dosing of epinephrine allows for improved survival, especially in those with non-shockable rhythms. Try to give it IV. That's preferred over IO. Opioid overdose is emphasized as a cause of respiratory arrest. Lay rescuer use of naloxone is emphasized and encouraged. If full arrest, though, just do as usual. For pregnant patients with an arrest, a decision to do a peripartum C-section should be made within five minutes of the arrest. There is an emphasis on post-arrest care, which is very, very important, supportive care, and maintenance of homeostasis after the arrest. 
They recommend against using POCUS for prognostication, but instead focus on improving neural prognostication using a multimodal approach. And finally, they add recovery to the sixth length of the chain of survival and emphasize the importance of expectation setting both for the family and for caregivers. Now then, for the pediatric side, the respiratory rate targets have been increased to 20 to 30 per minute during CPR. That's just about doubling the old recommendation. The use of cuffed endotracheal tubes is encouraged. Remember, it's age divided by 4 plus 3.5 for sizing. Cricoid pressure is out, good riddance. Early epinephrine is in, just like in adults, especially in non-shockable rhythms. Use diagnostic blood pressure to guide CPR if an invasive line is already in. That's a great idea. Use EEG to detect and treat subclinical seizure activity post-arrest. There is a similar focus on recovery after arrest, getting rehabilitation, and setting realistic expectations. For septic shock, boluses of 10 to 20 mLs per kg with frequent reassessments are recommended. Balanced fluids are mentioned as an option, which I think is a win. And lastly, the fact that children are impacted by the opioid epidemic as well can never be forgotten. Alright guys, that's it. That's all the guideline updates. If you like those cute little decision tree cards, then make sure to pick up a new version. Now, normally after the first three weeks, we would go to the Thursday, but I'm going to skip ahead to the Friday's article and then we'll get back to it. The fifth article was titled Identification of Very Low-Risk Acute Chest Pain Patients Without Troponin Testing out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. The heart pathway is great. A lot of us use it now. It's become very widely taken up. The letters standing for history, ECG, age, risk factors, and serial troponins. Now, numerous studies have shown it to be useful for risk-stratifying chest pain patients. Here's a crazy idea, though, and one that might save us a lot of time. What if we could just drop the T, and instead of having the heart pathway, we could have the HERE pathway without troponins? So this was a secondary analysis of a heart pathway implementation study of 4,800 patients. In patients with very low HERE scores, that's heart without the T, of 0 or 1, the major risk of adverse cardiac events at 30 days was just 0.9%. With troponins kept in, it would have reclassified only two patients, one of which was a cocaine user with chronically elevated troponin levels whose management didn't change, and the other had clean coronaries and ended up being diagnosed with Takotsubo. There were two patients who died, both from existing cancers and not related to heart disease. So the heart score, but without a T, the HERE score, would have a sensitivity of 97.8% and a negative predictive value of 99.1%. The risk of 0.9% from a low HERE score is a low risk, less than the 1% risk that the author state is the typical benchmark for acceptability. This is all very reassuring, but keep in mind that this is still just a secondary analysis of a study that wasn't designed to measure this outcome specifically. The 95% confidence interval also spans from 0.2 to 2.3%, which is well above that 1% threshold of acceptability I mentioned. A larger targeted prospective study will need to be done to follow all this up. So in a spoonful in patients with a HERE score of 0 or 1, had very low risk of adverse cardiac events within 30 days. Now we'll jump back to what should have been Thursday's article. Now, this week's fourth article on the blog is actually a list of the top articles that we covered from 2020. And I was thinking that I might want to dig through the literal hundreds of articles that we summarized for you over the course of a year. But in the interest of keeping the podcast short and not adding a review of a bunch more articles on top of all that guideline talk that I was doing before, 
I thought I'd say just a few words about how grateful I am for this past year. It's been a crazy year, and even if we probably should have seen something like this coming, since a pandemic like this is probably overdue, no one really thought it would happen in our lifetimes. So through all that craziness, I've seen that the FOMED community has held on and really gone the extra mile to provide accurate information in a time when we so sorely needed it. Myself, being part of the journal feed team, has been a highlight of my year. So here's a few highlights about the journal feed from the past year in 2020. We partnered with Hippo Education and now offer you guys CME credits to all our subscribers, which I think is really great. Of course, the blog is now accompanied by the podcast, since you're hearing my voice right now, so you can listen to all the journal feed summaries and read them. And now, most recently, we've also partnered with the Society of Emergency Medicine's Academy of Emergency Ultrasound to bring you the best on POCUS. It has been a crazy year, but a kind of a crazy good year in some ways. I look forward to many, many more. Stay safe out there, and Happy New Year, everyone.